I almost forgot these. That would have blown my whole intro. Anybody know what these are? Building plans, that's right. Architectural drawings, now they're rubber banded together, but if I were to unfurl them, there'd be a whole mess of building plans. And what's interesting to me is, if I was to open those up, they'd be about this thick. And yet, these are the plans for the room you're sitting in, which actually is about 40 feet from floor to ceiling. And it's interesting to me, you know, for those of you watching online, we've got some of these plans. And when you start building a building, you have to lay out the site, and you have to decide where everything's going to go and what it's going to look like. And then you can draw what's going on inside. Now, I love this next image, the second slide, because there's the plans that the architect had in his mind as he was drawing the building. And then if you look closely, you can see all these handwritten notes and all these, okay, we had to do this, or we had to do that, or this had to go here, uh, because the plan needed to be revised as it actually started to come up out of the ground. And so when you drive by on 57th Street, what you see is not a set of plans. You see a building, right, that comes up out of the ground. And reaches up pretty high, and I was even thinking about this on the way to church a couple of days ago, that you come up that big hill on Minnesota or on Cliff, depending on which way you're coming, we're pretty high as far as Sioux Falls is considered. And so I, I thought, you know, if you just stand out in the front door and you look across the street, you see a pretty limited view, right? But if you're just a little half crazy and you know how to get on the roof, you get up on the roof and you go up, and I took panoramics of both directions, looking north, looking south. You can see so much more from up there, can't you? You can see quite a ways. Now, you can't see quite as far as I thought you could. I was like, man, maybe we'll be able to see, you know, all the way, you know, over the tree line. And there are things there that you can see, and Pastor Zach has taken a drone up and just get a few more feet, and you can see a long, long ways. But it's interesting to me that the plans came before anything else. A couple inches of paper brought about what we're sitting in. Now, we're in a final week of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. This message is going to be titled, Loving Christ Above All Else. It is very much a capstone for this eight-week journey that we've been on, an eight-week journey in this room or online that may represent a journey that needs to continue for you as you work through the things that we've been talking about, or if you've been in one of our groups, maybe you've unearthed some things that you know that you need to come and revisit. We're talking about loving Christ above all else because I just didn't love the final title of the, the last chapter of the book, but I do love this little mini-series that has sort of emerged at the end of this Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you were here two weeks ago in week six, we talked about an invitation to loving union as we journey through the wall, as we enlarge our soul through grief and loss, as we go back to go forward, as we do all these things that help us to become emotionally mature, there is an invitation to loving union with God that comes to us in every single season of our lives. And our bottom line there in week six was that truly delighting in the Lord, the way David talks about in Psalm 37, doesn't happen by accident. It happens on purpose with some intentionality. And so this mini-series then continued after an invitation to loving union. Last week we looked at learning to love well 
learning to love well. And we focused on that great or greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And a second great commandment that Jesus merged with it, to love your neighbor as yourself, that we love well when we love God well and we love others well. And so, as I was preparing for this message, you wouldn't you know it, God just reminded me of a time in my life when I was far less mature, far less emotionally mature. And you might be thinking, well, you still have a ways to go, and you would be right. But I was reminded early in my relationship with Christ, we had a new worship leader come to the church that we were worshiping with, and he had this song that he loved to sing when we passed the offering plates. He'd probably sing it every other week or at least once a month. And I hated this song. It was like fingernails on the chalkboard for me. And you're about to find out why I don't sing on a microphone, because I have to sing you this song. You just won't get it any other way. Now, maybe you'll like this, but I loathed this song. It went, the Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you, and the Jesus in you loves the Jesus in me, and you're easy. And then it would say you're easy like four or five times, easy to love. And that was the song. You might think, well, that's actually a pretty good song. It's theologically sound. But I couldn't stand that song. And we did it a lot because, you know, it was just that little chorus so you could repeat it. And if it took two choruses to pass the offering plate, you could sing it twice. If it took three on a really busy service, you could sing it three times. And then he could put his fist up. And that was to signal to the band and to the team that it was time to stop singing that song. And then we would go on to the next song. And so I was always looking to see that fist go up if that song came up. And I was thinking back about those emotional life stages last week that we talked about. And how infantile and childish I was about that song. I spiritualized my disdain for that song. I gossiped with other people about it and asked them if they hated it as much as I did. I even did the unthinkable. And I, I can't believe I did this now. 15 years into ministry, I filled out a comment card, a prayer card, and asked that we could stop singing that song. Please, any other song but that song. Now, thankfully, I've matured emotionally, at least a little. And then I joined the staff, so I had to apologize to the pastor. I was like, I am so sorry. I know, I was just, I'm sorry. All I can do is repent and ask your forgiveness. And I still don't like that song. <laughs> and interestingly enough, I still have songs that I don't like. And we even sing some of them here, but nobody knows which ones they are. Michael doesn't know. My kids don't know. My wife doesn't know. Nobody knows. Because even when we sing a song that's not my favorite, I actually take that as an opportunity. Now I get to worship beyond the emotion that the song evokes. I can choose to worship God through that song, whether I like it or not. And it's so much better. And like I said, the song was actually pretty theologically sound. Because the sinner in me doesn't necessarily like the sinner in you. And it's even a dangerous combination if it does. But the Jesus in me can love the Jesus in you. And we can take that approach. And the Jesus in each of us is easy to love. Now, if we can learn to truly love Christ above all else, which is what we're talking about today, then I believe that we can't help but learn to love others well as well. And so in many ways, we're picking up right where week six left off, 
in that invitation to loving union where we looked at the discovering the rhythms of the daily office and the Sabbath. And then last week became this really wonderful focusing on why this matters so much. Why does it matter so much that we learn to love well? Because we learn to love God well, we learn to love others well. So today as we talk about loving Christ above all else, the title of the chapter was Go the Next Step and Dis- Develop a Rule of Life. And, and we'll see that the daily office and the Sabbath, those daily and weekly rhythms, are the foundation or the launch pad into a rule of life. Now, we'll talk more about what a rule of life is because you maybe are not super familiar with that terminology. I wasn't. But a rule of life is basically a collection of spiritual disciplines, convictions, and commitments that we make that help us to keep God at the very center of our lives. And that's one of our core values here, is that we would center our lives on God's Word. That we wouldn't just pass through it occasionally as we go through life, but that we would center our lives on God's Word, that we would bring it there and stay there and live our lives from the foundation of His Word and from the foundation of our relationship with Him. And we're going to look at the book of Daniel today as a powerful example of this principle at work. And so if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 1, if you're online, we'll have this on the screen, but open up a Bible, put it uh, on your lap. If you need one of our Bibles, for those of you here in the room, we have some in the seats in front of you. It's page 1369. But it's just a little context, because most of the context that we need is going to come from the Scripture that we're looking at. But Daniel was one of the major prophets of the exile period of the, the history of the Jewish people, that the northern kingdom fell, and then the southern kingdom fell. Daniel was from the southern kingdom, and so he was part of this exile period where these kingdoms had been overrun by foreign armies, and the people were dispersed. God's people were dispersed. They weren't just centrally located there in the promised land. They were taken off to Assyria first and then to Babylon. So that's a little bit of context. We'll get the majority of the context as we work through the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 1. So let me read that to you and follow along with me. And we'll pause as we need to go along to clarify some things. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, there's a lot of warnings that precede this. There's a lot of times that God encourages the people of God Remember the covenant. Remember the miracles that I've done. Remember the great deliverance. Honor the covenant. Be faithful to the covenant. The covenant was a really good deal for the people of God. And over and over, they broke the covenant. They forgot God. They said, who is the Lord? They, they just neglected to take care of their relationship with God, their covenant relationship with God. And therefore, they forfeited the promises of the covenant. And then in verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, 
This was one of the things that Babylon was better at than just about anybody else. It was this forced assimilation of the best and the brightest. And they did this with every nation that they conquered. They would cart off the best and the brightest, and they would assimilate them into their culture and bring them into the king's service so that the best and the brightest were in the king's service. And this had a secondary uh, benefit for Babylon, and that was that there were no best and brightest to lead any kind of rebellion or to, to keep the people moving forward, that, that it had two roles. He got the best and the brightest, and the people he conquered were left without any of their ruling class, without any of those that could read, without any of those that had education. So it had two purposes. And we pick up in verse 6, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. See, he even changed their names. He changed their names from names that pointed to Yahweh, to the Lord, which Daniel, E-L, is the Hebrew root for God or for the Lord. Yahweh, that you see in several of those names, would be pointing to God, Hananiah, like hallelujah. And so he's taking their identity, and he's saying it's no longer rooted in your God. It's now rooted in these Babylonian gods. And so the names that they receive, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are Babylonian gods. They point to them. But here's what I really want us to see is in verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, I've preached on all the lessons we can learn from the way that Daniel approached that setting, but today I want to share with you something that it's why I love rereading Scripture so much, because I have probably read the book of Daniel at least a dozen times. It's one of the ones that I like a lot in the Old Testament, and it's a little shorter than some of the other major prophets. So I've read it more than, oft, more than once, and I've preached on it quite a bit, but it had never occurred to me. If you look up in verse 1, at the very end of verse 1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged Jerusalem. And that came back into my mind today as Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He's doing that after a lengthy siege. And Several of the prophets write about how bad that siege got and how desperate the people were because the siege meant that no food came in or out. And so the people were literally starving to death. And then, once they're finally conquered, Daniel and his friends get carted across the desert for months. They were malnourished. They were starving. And Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food. This would be like me not feeding my boys for a week and walking them into Pizza Ranch and them saying, we're only going to have off the salad bar and no dressing. Okay, this is like unheard of. I had never considered how hungry Daniel and his friends must have been at the point that they get set at the king's table. They get to eat the king's food. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, Daniel was very wise. He knew what was going on. He knew that there was this assimilation and that one of the ways that he could retain his Jewish identity, one of the ways that he could be holy and set apart to God was to not allow himself to be assimilated in that way as much as possible. He wanted to retain his identity. He wanted to retain his relationship with God. He didn't want to defile himself with the food. That's the second layer of this, is that all of that food that was on the king's table would have been sacrificed to pagan gods. 
And there would have been pork. And as much as we like bacon, that's off limits for the Jewish people. So he's not able to eat some of the foods that are on the table. And all of those foods and all of that wine has been sacrificed to pagan gods. And so he comes up with a plan. He, he was very, very intentional about not defiling himself. And it stands out. It's fascinating to me that a teenage boy, malnourished, starving, had this level of self-discipline. It just blew my mind. Now, if you fast forward, we're going to have to skip chapter 3 because we don't have time to talk about everything that, that goes into this. But chapter 3 is this beautiful story of this King Nebuchadnezzar puts up this golden image. Maybe you've heard this one. And he says, everybody's got to bow to the golden image. Now, chapter 3 focuses on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, we're not going to bow to the image. And so the solution is you throw anybody that's not going to bow to the image into the fiery furnace. Maybe you've heard this story, right? But we're going to skip over to Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to see further evidence that Daniel had a way of life. He had a rule of life that was not negotiable, and that this rule of life had served him incredibly well for decades. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, we read, It pleased Darius, this is a new king, this is somewhere between 60, 70 years later. So Daniel has been serving in the court of the Babylonian kings for decades at this point. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, kind of like governors. And with these three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Now the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So they would collect tribute and they would make sure that the laws were being enforced. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. See, this gives you the character of the people Daniel is serving with, and yet he had not assimilated into that dog-eat-dog -dog world. He had continued to be honest and trustworthy and was not corrupt or negligent. Even those at the highest levels of government were corrupt and negligent. In verse 5, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the same was said of every single one of us, everyone that named the name of Jesus, that if somebody tried to pin dirt to us, they would be so frustrated they finally said, you know, we're just not going to get anything to stick unless it has something to do with their faith, something to do with the, the regularity of their spiritual life. That's what's happening with Daniel. And I have to imagine that this is just one of many examples. It's hard to believe that this would happen one time in 60 or 70 years. That Daniel probably had this many times. And we get insight into this one late in his life. And so if you've heard this story, they... They come up with this elaborate plan. They convince the king to make an edict that for 30 days nobody can pray to anything or anyone other than the king himself because in Babylon they believed that the king was a god. And so they, he foolishly goes right along with it, doesn't ask Daniel about it, even though Daniel's his best and brightest. He just goes along with the other two. And if anybody does pray to another god, they get thrown into the lion's den. Let's jump down to verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned 
that the decree had been published, he went to the king and he threw a hissy fit. Oh, that's, that's not actually what it says. Hold on. He went to the other two admins and killed them. No, that's not what it says. He ranted about it on social media. That's what he did. No? I know. He recruited the majority of the satraps and he staged a coup and became king himself. That's not what it says. It says he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And he decided to take 30 days off from prayer. Oh, that's not what it says. Oh, he closed the window and he prayed silently so that nobody would know. Doesn't say that either. It says that three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. You see, he stayed faithful. He trusted God. He kept praying. It wasn't just something that he did. It was a part of who he was. Time out here, because life is going to give you plenty of reasons to stop being faithful, to stop praying, to stop trusting, to stop believing. God is going to give you plenty of reasons to stop serving, to stop giving, to stop worshiping. Don't take any of them. Daniel had plenty of opportunities over the 60 or 70 years that he was serving in the court of a foreign king. He had plenty of opportunities to stop. He had plenty of opportunities to assimilate. He had plenty of opportunities to just go with the flow. And he didn't take any of them. He stayed faithful. I can't encourage you enough to decide how you will live your life, what really matters to you, and then do that. Do it daily. Do it weekly. Do it monthly. Do it annually for the rest of your life, just like Daniel is, because Daniel shows us the power of a rule of life in real life. In perhaps the darkest, most difficult circumstances where he had every reason to just throw up his hands and say, you let Jerusalem fall. You let me be carted off. I'm just done with you, God. I'm going to go with Babylon. He had every opportunity and every reason to do that. And yet there's a whole book in the Bible called Daniel because he didn't, because he stayed faithful and he served faithfully for decades in the court of four different foreign kings because he decided how he was going to live his life. And then he did it. And you likely know the rest of the story. He gets caught praying to God. He gets thrown into the lion's den. And he gets delivered, miraculously. And Daniel trusted God. He realized that it was a win-win situation. He was either going to continue to faithfully serve his God here on earth, or he was going to be taken to serve God in heaven. It was a win-win situation, very similar to what you would hear if you read Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are given one last chance to kneel, to bow to this golden image. They say, we don't even have to answer you in this manner. We know that our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to the image. And they get thrown into the fire. And there's a fourth one in the fire. A pre-incarnate Christ visits them in the fire, and they come out of the fire unscathed. Daniel goes into the lion's den because of his faith in God, because of his refusal to bow the knee, to quit being who he was, and God was faithful. And so that's a beautiful illustration of the power of a rule of life in real life. 
And this world is going to look more and more like Babylon than it is going to look like heaven. And yet we have an opportunity to decide how we're going to live our lives and to not yield. So what is a rule of life and how do we do it? Don't get hung up on the word rule. Rule comes from the Greek word for trellis. How many of you know what a trellis is? A trellis is, a, a, like, usually it's an interweaving collection of, you know, wood or string or something that allows the plant to grow up off the ground, to get vertical, to get air, to get more sun, to get more oxygen. It's a tool, essentially, that allows the grapevine to get up off the ground and to make it more fruitful and, I would add, more recognizable. That if it's just growing down on the ground, you might miss it. But if it's up, you can't help but see it. And a really good trellis and a really good vine dresser, you won't even be able to see the trellis because all you can see is the fruit. All you can see is the grapes in this case. And that's essentially what a rule of life does. It's it's a trellis. It's a trellis of life, if you want to think of it that way, that helps us to love Christ above all else. It makes us more fruitful. It makes our lives more visible to the world around us, more recognizable to others, whether they're in the fellowship or outside the fellowship. They recognize something. When we pray in a restaurant, when we stop what we're doing to recenter our lives on Christ, when we choose not to do some of the things that the world around us is doing and abstain from those, it makes us more recognizable. When we choose to go out of our way to love, out of our way to live for Jesus, it makes it recognizable to those within the church and outside of the church. And it makes us less earthly and more spiritual, more spirit-led. In a very real sense, the trellis gets the grapevine up off the ground. A rule of life, a trellis of life, teaching us and helping us to love Christ above all else, gets us up off the earth, off the earthly, sinful nature, and up into the spirit, living in the spirit. And so, as Schizero defines it, a trellis of life or a rule of life is very simply an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the very center of everything we do. It provides guidelines to help us continually remember God as the source of our lives. It includes our unique combination of spiritual practices that provide structure for us to intentionally pay attention and remember God in everything we do. It kind of points back to week six. Truly delighting in the Lord doesn't happen by accident. It happens with intentionality. Look at the definition as Cazero gives, it's an intentional, conscious plan to continually remember, to intentionally pay attention and remember God. What did God tell the people to do over and over and over in the book of Deuteronomy? Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. And so a rule of life, a trellis of life helps us do that. I think it's significant that it is not just these spiritual disciplines and commitments, but that it's unique to you. It's not one for everyone. I can't just say, okay, here's your rule of life. Go do it. You have to discover it. You have to decide what it's going to be. There are four sort of common elements that we'll walk through. And as you do this, you know, think through, okay, there's prayer. Prayer comes in a number of different forms. It's not just head down, eyes closed. 
Prayer can be scripture, it can be silence and solitude, it can be that daily office that brings you back into a prayerful relationship with God. It can be study where we go deeper than just reading scripture, but we really study it. We read the notes, we get a commentary, we talk about it in a group with other people and study God's Word together. And I added worship here because worship wasn't on Scazzaro's list. And I was like, man, we got to worship. we got to come together and worship. we got to worship God silently, that this is part of our prayer life, that anytime we're interacting with God, that's prayer. And so when we're singing songs in a room with a couple hundred people, that's prayer. When we're walking silently and start humming a hymn and bringing our attention to God and His attributes, that's prayer. The next one is rest. This is Sabbath. This is simplicity, choosing to live a simple life, as Paul said to the Thessalonian church. This is recreation, that that we do things that are recreational to us, that are hobbies, that that enable us to use the gifts and abilities that God has given us in a creative and artistic and recreational way. There's work and activity. This is where we find ourselves serving others, serving the church, on mission for the church. Caring for our physical body is involved in this work and this activity that we're, we're, we're given a body, and God asks us to be good stewards of that body. That all this is wrapped up in what might be part of our rule of life. And fourth, but certainly not least, would be relationships. This is where we grow in our emotional health. This is where we spend time with family. We prioritize that. We spend time in community with other believers. And so that's what you do in a rule of life, but Schizero doesn't really talk about it. I think a rule of life also has certain commitments, things you're not going to do. And maybe these change throughout life as certain things get a little extra attention from the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know, you've been doing this for a while. You ought to cut that out. It's not helping you. It's not helping anybody else. So there might be convictions that come from the Holy Spirit. And you make a commitment for a season as part of your rule of life that you're not going to do certain things. You want to get sin out of your life. You want to pursue holiness and sanctification. And that's really what this whole rule of life is all about, is loving Christ above all else. Being holy, set apart, that's what that word means. Holy, sanctification, those are very synonymous terms that mean to be set apart from God, set apart for God, set apart from the world. And so we pursue a rule of life, we develop a rule of life where we incorporate prayer, rest, work, relationships to help us keep God at the center of our lives. We experiment with this, we customize it. There's a powerful book called Spiritual Pathways that identifies different spiritual pathways that different people might come into God's presence through that spiritual pathway. Some are like corporate worship, others silence and solitude, alone in nature. These are different things that can bring us into the presence of God. And maybe you have a spiritual pathway, and your rule of life should be heavy on the things that are in your spiritual pathway so that you can come into, it's like a shortcut into God's presence. It doesn't mean you just disregard the rest of them, but you maybe double down on that one. Your personality will play a role in this, whether you're introverted or extroverted. How spiritually mature you are will play a role in this. And as you mature, your rule of life will change, and you might level up. And, you know, two minutes of prayer might turn into five or ten. And reading through the Bible once might turn into, let's read through the New Testament every year. Let's read through the Old Testament every four years. Let's level up. As we grow and we have greater capacity, make sure your rule of life grows with you, that your plan grows with you. Now, 
I want to share mine with you just briefly, not to call attention to me. I know Jesus said, you know, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And so this isn't about looking at me. This is, this is something that's been cultivated over the last 15 years. And particularly over the last 15 to 18 months, it has changed a lot and gotten a lot better. But my daily, I broke mine down daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annually. And as you listen, you'll see those different elements of the rule of life. You'll see prayer, rest, work, and relationships. And so daily, I spend time in God's Word, and I write about it in my Banding Together journal. I write down at least one verse. I write down a prayer. And when I have time, I, I do a soap journal, scripture observation, application, prayer, and I engage God's Word in that way. Then I have a prayer journal. I, one to three times a day, I like to connect deeply in worship. Seven times throughout the day, I worship. All right, I'm sorry. Seven times throughout the day, I pray. I'm reminded to pray. I'm brought back to prayer. I'm brought back to God. And I spend time with my family every day. It's a priority. Even when I'm out of town, we make the call or have a FaceTime or a text, have some touch point, some engagement. Weekly, I lead two banding together groups. I try to get at least three, but as many as five or six silence and solitude walks where there's nothing in my ears. I'm just alone with God walking through nature because nature is one of my spiritual pathways. It's one of those places where I see God's glory and I relate to it. Weekly, prior, prioritize the Sabbath. Now, monthly, I do a prayer journal review and a banding together journal review. I highly recommend this. If you're going to journal, read what you wrote you'll see that there were things that you were wrestling with that God resolved. You'll see answered prayers. You'll see relationships that were in a really dicey place that aren't anymore. You'll see God's Word kind of create a theme for that month if you would review your Banding Together journal or some other scripture journal. So read what you wrote. Review those things. I prioritize a day alone with God each month. I look forward to the 24 hours of prayer, and I have a fasting regimen each month to make sure that I'm foregoing daily food in order to have spiritual food that would nourish me. Now, quarterly and annually, I try to get one to two silence and solitude retreats. Involved in those is an annual prayer journal review. So I look at the whole year and the things that I've been praying for and the things I've been learning from God and the things that he's been teaching me, and I distill those. So that when I go on sabbatical, like I did last year, I was able to pull out those annual reviews, and I could see a six-year snapshot of what God and I had been learning and it was amazing, and I just couldn't believe the ark and, and how some of the things that used to eat my lunch on a regular basis aren't even an issue anymore. You think that's encouraging for your faith? Absolutely. And we prioritize a two-week vacation together as a family to not try to cram it all into a five-day or a seven-day window, but to take two weeks and to go away together and to build those family relationships and those memories. My don't list, it's a really trying hard not to complain, not to gossip. That's when you complain about someone to someone else. I'm working real hard on speeding. God's delivered me from speeding. It's been wonderful. Cursing, drinking, these are things that God has delivered me from in the past. That they used to be a really big issue, and they're not an issue anymore. They're a non-issue. And that's what's really beautiful about a rule of life is that things come up and they're an issue and then you and God work on that issue and then it's a non-issue and now there's a new issue 
that comes to the surface or a new thing that we get to work on that we couldn't work on when we were back here because this was like the ER issue and now we're on like a here's better, best. How can we keep growing in our relationship with God? Here's the bottom line. We need a plan to love God, to love Christ above all else. We need a plan. It's not going to happen by accident. We needed a plan to build a church like this. You couldn't just be half a dozen guys bringing their toolboxes and some spare lumber. We needed a plan. And you need a plan. And there's value in putting the plan together and bouncing it off somebody that you love and care about and that you know loves and cares about you. Because I guarantee you, the enemy has a plan to keep you from loving Jesus above all else. And it may not be the spectacular. It might just be busyness, or it might just be make him feel bored. Tell him he's bored in church. Tell him he's bored when the message goes past the 30-minute time slot. Tell him he's bored. Or tell her she's bored in her Bible study so that she won't want to go. Sometimes it's busyness. Sometimes it's boredom. Sometimes it's outright sin and addiction and the different things. The enemy has a plan. And he has forces that are at work. But if we have a plan, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That would have been a wonderful place for an amen. We need a plan. We need a trellis of spiritual disciplines in our lives to get us up off this earthly toil and into the Spirit's presence. And here's what's beautiful and here's what's powerful. When we do this and when we get this, and we get it working in our lives, we get to be a piece in someone else's trellis that helps them get up off the ground. Whether that's leading a Bible study group or that's praying, being a prayer warrior, leading people in worship, teaching. It doesn't have to be in vocational ministry. In fact, it needs to not be in vocational ministry. We need people who are working in this world, people who are engaged in their families' lives, people who are engaged in their neighbors' lives, retired people, to be pieces in the trellis of other people's lives, helping them rise above and into the Spirit's presence. And so we need a plan, and then we need to carry out the plan. Some people had the faith and the resources to carry out the plan, and we have to have the faith and the resources to carry out the plan, because plans don't equal buildings. They're an essential step, but don't just make a plan and then go on with your life. Make a plan and start living out that plan. And then revise as you need to and grow as you grow. Your plan should grow. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace. We're so thankful that you love us so much. You just want us to love you above all else because you know that's best for us. And so I pray, Lord, that as we respond in faith today to all that we've learned over these last eight weeks, that many of us will set aside some time to really pray through, what's my plan? What's my strategy? How am I going to make sure that I am growing and loving you above all else? And then, Lord, show us how we can be a participant in someone else's plan how we can share the good news with someone else and how we can point people to you in every aspect of our lives. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.